This is Alternate Appreciation, Art 131, and today I have Johnson R. Hunt with us. Um, Johnny, if you would give us a introduction to just who you are, uh, the work that, that you do, both uh, personally and your work as an educator. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm Johnny, and I uh, currently reside up in northern Michigan, and I would say that I am a vocational artist and a career art educator. Um, and my art practice varies a lot. Um, I don't think I would define myself as any one particular type of artist. It kind of ebbs and flows depending on the idea. Um, just like my teaching. <laughs> yeah, I know how that feels. Um, so one big thing I think that's interesting about your work is that a lot of your stuff um, kind of moves in and out of what you teach, like what, what you teach influences your work and what, what your work is influences the way you teach. Um, could you kind of go through how that how that works for you and, and maybe an example of where that's worked well or where it's worked poorly? Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, well, I'm very fortunate um, to work at an institution where I have almost all the control I want over my curriculum. And um, what I found for me as just an educator, what works best is to teach something I'm really like excited about because that excitement feeds with classroom energy and it works really well. And whenever I can find ways to merge what I'm teaching with what I'm doing in my own artistic personal practice, it just overall has a really great, um, to use the students' words, vibe mm -hmm. in the in the classroom. And um, it, it, you know, I teach so many different types of art classes that anytime I can make my life easier by having some overlap there, um, I try to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of that, I think, is just like spending more years in the classroom and learning how to do that. Um, choosing projects a little bit more carefully. Yeah. Um, one, what what institution do you teach at? And two, could you go through some of those classes? Because um, art classes is a pretty wide-ranging uh, list. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I work at um, this great institution. It's called Interlochen Center for the Arts. And a um, little backstory, a little history of it. It um, started as the first, like, national orchestra camp. So it's really known for music and performing arts, uh, really known for its summer camp program, and then eventually became a boarding high school uh, that focused on the arts. And I think the best way to describe it to people who don't know anything about it is it's a lot like Hogwarts for artists. <laughs> um, and... You know, it's a really intensive experience because the students come and live here um, and their day is structured around their art form that they choose. Mm -hmm. And I teach in the visual arts department and uh, I, I would describe myself as a, a Jill of many trades and a master of none. <laughs> um, I kind of think of myself more as like a problem solver and my particular art projects with problems to solve and those change just like the media should change accordingly but currently 
my course load is a uh, 2D foundations course for the freshmen, uh-huh. a fibers and fashion sewing course, which combines both like beginner level and advanced level students. Um, I teach a cold material exploration course. It's kind of like a sculpture or, two, or 3D type course. Uh-huh. And then I teach a printmaking course that focuses on relief and screen printing. And peppered in there, um, as you know, it is a pandemic. And uh, we do have a lot of international students about, I'd say, 20% of our student body in the past has been international. Uh And not all of them have been able to return to the United States. And so I'm teaching many, many students virtually as well. And those are kind of set up as independent studies where we meet once a week via Zoom. So um, that's kind of the way that my my teaching life is structured. And then kind of every moment in between is dedicated to art practice for the most part, at least while I'm in Michigan. Yeah. That's... I do have breaks where I'm where I leave and, and I give myself breaks them. But when I'm in Michigan, I kind of treat it like an artist residency. That's a really good thing and a really good idea on how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for your personal practice, other than, of course, learning certain skills and techniques for, for, for teaching them, um, what's your motivation for making work? And can you describe a recent project? Sure. Um, my motivation for making work, whew, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think uh, um, I've always been a maker of things ever since I was a little kid. Uh, kind of think of myself as an organized hoarder, which I think leads to the making of things. Um, but uh, I think recently like a lot of people a lot of my work has had to do with the pandemic and the isolation that comes along with it Mm -hmm. um i'm also like recently going through a breakup so that's another thing that is uh forming my artwork right now and um you know working at an institution where we are doing in-class learning we're taking um kind of our personal health and safety really seriously so while I'm teaching, I've kind of made a pledge to not go anywhere um, Uh for the sake of my students. And so in an effort to kind of mitigate the isolation I would be feeling now, I did some traveling over the summer. I actually saw you and your wife Uh for part of that time. And uh, during that time, I was making a lot of art about the places I was going. And work was kind of reflective of driving through the United States and seeing how every place is treating the pandemic differently, which was really, really eye-opening and uh, disheartening. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Um, So what did that project, or what do you want that project to end up looking like? um, So yeah, I had like the first, I would say, piece of that. That was in a show that just came down um, up here. Um, And that was those are sculpture pieces and they're kind of casts that are taken from from the dirt and the different places I was staying. So while I was traveling, um, I was taking my social distancing pretty seriously. And if I wasn't able to stay with someone who I knew was 
very seriously distancing, I was camping by myself. And so uh, getting back to nature and so collecting um, essentially these castings of the earth and artifacts along my travels, things like rocks and sticks that kind of came together to form these, these weird sculptures that in my opinion kind of now reference maybe bones. Um, but I really think of them as maps and uh, kind of collection of time and collection of journey. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I was going to ask you with, with uh, projects like that is we're going to put up, I think, an Instagram for you after this so people sure. can see. Okay. All right. So just making sure I knew I rem remembered right which one it was. Um, yeah. Um, so we'll have that yeah. in the comments so people can go and actually look at the work that you've done. Um, I think that that's a For really sure. important thing. Yeah, I'm sure, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, people don't know. Yeah, I'm discussing sure people don't know what what a dirt cast looks like. Yeah, um, that's not so. easy to describe, and unfortunately, visual arts in an auditor in an audio medium doesn't really, you know. There's some there's some problems. Uh, so right. with the with the ideas of pandemic and isolation and something like that, some of your past work has dealt a lot with. Um, uh, mental health and kind of uh, I think you, you said a little bit about like now that we're physically taking care of ourselves more and being much more cautious about our physical health I think a lot of people are being much more cautious about their mental health as well um do you want to talk a little bit about that and is that is that something that is informing your work right now oh definitely um definitely so I um I actually now and this is and this is fairly new i kind of came out i think two years ago as a a openly disabled person um although you don't necessarily see my disability on the surface uh i kind of describe my disability as a brain chemical imbalance <laughs> and um you know it's it's a very it's a very physical thing that happens in my body that causes very uh very real responses and um recently just you know that's always been a lens that my work goes through but recently talking about it has really kind of changed the direction of the work and um has helped me feel a bit more empowered about the work mm -hmm. um definitely more open to talk about it i've uh you know i had a a family friend who she was kind of like a she worked in HR and I, and I remember talking to her about, you know, when do I disclose this and, and all of that. And she's like, well, you can't unring that bell. And I remember being very, very timid, but once I did, um, it almost felt like spitting the poison out. And now it has really, um, changed a lot of my relationships with my students in teaching. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's made my art a little bit easier to talk about because I don't have to veil it through language i can i can just say like yeah. this is coming through this lens of of my mental illness um but i think it's a really really exciting time in the sense that um a lot of accommodations for people who who have been disabled in the past are now happening because everybody needs them mm -hmm. and my my hope is that that doesn't change as um, kind of the world worldwide health changes. I hope that people 
keep that in consideration and realize how um, how important that is to, to be open to different types of accommodations in these, these types of times. Yeah, uh, you spoke briefly about um, talking with your students about, about mental health stuff, and I think that that's something that even at the college level we have big issues with the students who haven't quite figured themselves out yet. Um, mm-hmm. And and it can be a really difficult, I mean, not, not just awkward, but truly difficult conversation with them. Um, do you find that making work on those topics helps some of your students open up or... or um, are you still having the same problems that everybody else is? Um, I mean, yes and no, right? Like, people are people and they're complex and teenagers even more so. (laughs) Um, One of my colleagues says something that um, is that all art is therapy, but not all therapy is art. So um, I I think that's something we we have to navigate because um, there's art and there's art that can be cathartic. And then there's just like catharsis and it's, it's helping a student navigate that and helping a student look at a piece and decide, you know, is this something I want to share with a viewer? And is that message something that I want to share? Or is this just for me? And like, how do you, how do you navigate that as an artist? moving forward which i think is is hard for anybody mm-hmm. but i mean as you know teaching art art is a lot like therapy because so much of ourselves is in it so it's it's a very interesting field to be in when you're trying to separate um kind of personal entanglement from a art object <laughs> yeah yeah, that's definitely not an easy task to do. And I think it is important, um, and it's nice that, that 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 you tell your students that some works of art are for themselves. Um, I think that's something that gets a little bit lost when you're in college and, and doing art in that the career is on the horizon. And so every single one of these objects must be a saleable object. And it gets a little rougher to try to do work just for yourself. Definitely. I think that's why I really um, encourage like sketchbook practice. Mm -hmm. That's like a really safe place. It's something that can go with you. And it's a practice that you can take on for years and years and years and years and do it alongside of all of that work that is, uh, you know, maybe got a more commercial motivation behind it. Yeah. And I think that one nice thing about sketchbooks is that everybody who's in visual arts will respect you if you don't show them your sketchbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's definitely a very, very personal part of the of the uh, career. Definitely. It's like a diary. Yeah. Yep. Just with pictures and mm-hmm. uh, and text a lot of times. Um, mm-hmm. Now, what, when we're talking about um, high school students and dealing with students in, um, in general, uh, how how do you handle that in a classroom? Because I think that you are a really competent teacher and I think it's interesting how teachers deal with, because teachers are coming from a point of very high skill and generally talking to people who are significantly lower skill and bridging that gap. Um, How do you handle that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, there's a lot of days where I just feel like a firefighter. 
putting out fires all over the classroom. Uh And there's days where I'm just running around just trying to keep all the sewing machines threaded. You know, (laughs) I'm, I'm a human like that. But then there's also times when when the class is is cruising and um and as they say they be vibing and um you know i my uh classroom is right across from my office and so that's allowed for me to you know if i need to i'm able to just kind of pull a student or pull a couple students out and have a bit more of a in-depth conversation with them that's kind of separate from the classroom and still feel like I'm watching my classroom. So I think part of it is is the physical space. Um, part of it's just like kind of experience. I definitely wasn't as good at that when I started. Um, and it's like, also I think recognizing when students need that from you and not every student needs that or needs it to the same degree and, and um, I mean, the only way you can figure that out is by observing them or asking them. And so I try to ask them. I try to talk to them every day and have at least a conversation with them every day that doesn't relate to their artwork. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, yeah, it's sometimes small talk, but it helps, too. You can kind of dig into and get a feeling of what's going on in their lives. and, and And that helps. Yeah. Uh, have you found there be, to be differences in uh, media? Because you teach so much stuff. Um, so when you're teaching like printmaking versus uh, fashion, how do you handle that? Because uh, they, they must be different because there are some very, very technical components of each of those and some very uh, art with a capital A components of those. Yeah, Um I'm really tired. <laughs> um, I'm tired a lot. It's, it's a bit much. I feel spread thin, but um, I also love it. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some institutions where the different art forms are very, very siloed, and the idea of crossing over doesn't happen much. And I think what's exciting when I do teach different medias like that is that all of a sudden printmaking is coming into the fashion class and we're printing on textiles and then next thing we know a board from sculptures coming into printmaking and we're printing on that and so uh, what I've found is there's a little bit more kind of um, interdisciplinary flow that happens when I'm Mm -hmm. able to teach classes like that Um, and I think part of it is because you know Students are in those classes, but also um, when I teach those classes, I tend to want to mix those medias anyways. So there's a bit of modeling that behavior that encourages them to to be curious and be like, well, what would happen if I turned this canvas into a dress? Or what would happen if I ran this lumpy thing through the printing press? And, <laughs> um, you know, it's just a bit more open for that. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Um, my colleagues in in music, you know, they might just teach flute, mm-hmm. just teach harp, and that's that's great. That's beautiful. It's just it's not for me. Yeah. Um. So so, just to be clear, your your, your students are are they taking all these classes or are they just jumping around with you? 
Hmm. Like, do you have one student who's in all three of those, or or um, do they just have, jump around? Yeah, um, the students. I'm trying to think. Uh, I think there's there's probably close to like um, maybe twelve or fifteen art classes, and each student is signed up for three. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, there is some overlap. Like I, like I don't have students who are in all of my classes, but I definitely have a handful of students that I have in two of my classes. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. That sounds very much like the split for a smaller art college experience. Yeah. I know all the students in my department, we only have about 55 students, so even though I might not work super closely with someone who's like really into like, I don't know, jewelry making, I Uh still know them. I still know their work. I can still have a conversation with them. Um, I just may not have had them for a class since they were like little baby freshmen or something. (laughs) Uh, So with the, with the fashion thing, um, that is quite a bit different than, than I guess it's, not really. It's actually pretty much just one step. But uh, it used to be much more of a, of a sculptor person way back when. Um, yeah. So, what kicked off the interest in fashion? Was it a was it a project? Was it something you saw? What what got you there? Yeah. Um, well, it's it's funny because um, I think uh, it was a time where yes and a yes and mentality really helped me. Um, but I was doing a lot of sculpture. I really like kind of identified as a sculptor for a while there and had worked with a art center um, in Florida, the Dominion Fine Art Center. And I had done a show with them. It was an installation art show called Contain It. And they were putting on this wearable art show later in that year. And I'm not sure if they they just needed more artists to participate or they had someone drop out, but they they knew I had some sewing experience since the piece I made earlier in the year had had sewing involved. Mm -hmm. So they reached out and they said, hey, would you be interested? And I thought I'd give it a try. And uh, and I did. And um, so that was like 11 years ago. (laughs) I had my first fashion show and that was my first like foray into fashion. Mm hmm. And I really liked, really, really enjoyed um, kind of the incorporation of the body and performance into the sculpture. And never really, I still don't think of myself as like a fashion artist. I think of myself as someone who makes wearable sculpture more. Uh Um, When I think of fashion, it makes me think of like, bit more like industry standard off the rack and couture things Uh and while I have a high high appreciation for that uh, it doesn't describe what I make Uh, what I make borders on uh, weird sculptures and Halloween costumes I would say (laughs) (laughs) oh man yes Um, but I would also say I think Although it is starting to merge a little bit more that, uh, like, visually, a lot of my fashion feels far away from some of my other work. And that's something, I think, as an artist that I've struggled with. Um, 
and still struggle with. So we'll see where that goes. Why do you think those things are so far away from each other? Because, I mean, like, when I think of my work, even the stuff that's on opposite ends of it has strange visual, like, linkings to it. I know that some of your stuff does too, but why do you feel that they're so separate? Yeah, um, I think because when I'm making a sculpture, there's more of an element of not having necessarily a planned product that I'm going for. It's more of I found this process and I will discover the ending through it. I don't mm-hmm. really know what that ending is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I'm, when I'm making a fashion piece, it starts from a drawing and I'm attempting to get there. And I think um, just because of that, the process is very different for me. And mm-hmm. and yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure why, but I think it's in there. That's locked in there in that process mm-hmm. <laughs> somewhere. Very cool. Um, so with the, the, um, going from sculpture to fashion, uh, and that fashion stuff you're doing, as you said, is very much art first fashion, little second, it's not stuff you'd want to go hiking in. Um, uh, so has that translated back into your own choices about your personal fashion stuff? Oh, definitely. Um, definitely. I mean, the fashion industry is this complex beast of a machine. And <laughs> yes. a lot of people don't realize um, what a big uh, kind of environmental disaster the world of fast fashion is. And there's a lot of things that have to do with that. A lot has to do with like the way we cycle our clothing, but also how fibers and textiles are made. Um, mm-hmm. More on polyester and kind of petroleum-based fibers versus things that were cotton and linen. And so, yeah, I probably read a lot more labels and tags on my clothing than my food, to be honest. <laughs> um which is a little embarrassing, but I do. Like, I, I won't buy something without reading the label, seeing where it's made, looking at it stitching. Um, and then making more clothes what, um, Just really, have... really quick, um, when you said looking at stitching, what are you, could you give a lay person some example of what you're looking for? Um, like what? I what's mean, a good thing versus not a good thing when you're looking? I assume probably thrift store stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, first thing I usually look at is the fabric, and when I say look at it, I mean touch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I have to feel it, and I have to know what it's going to feel like on my skin, and um, like I'm looking for like little things. Like, is it like really? Staticky and like does it feel like it's already like trying to pick up fuzz like or is it starting to pill or does it feel like really sturdy like um you know if I'm like looking at a coat or jacket and I have it like swung over my arm you know my arm should start to get warm little things like that mm-hmm. um like I look at the scenes where I know there's going to be a lot of stress like with pockets are and double check the stitching you know sometimes you, you get there and this you get home and your 
got a little like loose stitch there and you realize, oh, these pants are going to make it through the wash like four times before, you know, it falls apart. So Mm -hmm. just like doing due diligence uh, when shopping, uh, buying more things secondhand, the big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I've also been sewing a lot more of my own clothes and, uh, which is fun. I don't, I don't wear all the clothes I sew. Uh, (laughs) it's kind of, it's kind of funny. It's like, I'm definitely harder on my own craftsmanship than I would be if I were to pick something out in the store. Mm So, um, kind of weird about that. So maybe that's just an artist thing of being like (laughs) self-critical. Yes. Yeah. I think that goes for pretty much Everybody, you look at your own stuff and say, well, I could have done that better. Let me just, you know, do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is there anything in particular that you've enjoyed making recently? Like, are are you, I'm not even sure, uh, are you, do you do shirts or are you doing big jackets or dresses or what, what have you been up to? Well, um, let's see, what am I making right now? I'm doing... The big project I'm doing actually is a screen printing project, you Uh know, and um, it's actually uh, using a screen printing method that uses freezer paper stencils. So I'm hand cutting stencils Uh with freezer paper and screen printing with them. It's a very uh, quick and dirty way of screen printing. And these prints are based off of a, I guess, repressed memory that came back to me about a year and a half ago. And it was it was so strange. It was just this image that came into my head. And all of a sudden, I just, it, you know, it was transported back to this, this, this moment that happened when I was a child. And, um, I remember doing a little bit of research and talking to my therapist at the time about like repressed memories and and um, kind of discovering that those things only come out when a person feels safe enough for their brain to let them out. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of um, try and figure out a way to construct that. And that memory was so soft and fuzzy and so I came up with a screen printing process where um, I said well I'm going to start printing and make this edition of monoprint and I don't know what they're going to end up looking like but I know I'm going to do at least a hundred layers on each one Jeez. and I will find the memory and so um, I, I'm there for the most part Um my rules are changing a little bit. I think the one right now that has the most has 107 layers, different screen printing layers on it. And then some of the ones that need a little bit more work have about like 90. So my hope is to finish this project in like the next couple of weeks. And then I'm kind of actually stitching these prints into um, kind of these canvas frames and then they're going to become like a sculptural type piece. So it's the, the sculpture that it's going to become is actually going to reference the image that is within the print. 
so that's something yeah. I'm working on and, and essentially like the process is trying to mimic the finding of the memory but yeah, also knowing I'll I'll never actually find it. Yeah, the building um, up of little images. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um and it's funny because I kind of this piece was very rule based when it started and now it's when you get to a you know, getting to maybe ninety percent done with a project you start to be able to reevaluate your rules and I was able to be like, well, actually, I think this one found where it needs to be at 92, and that's okay to leave it there. And this one maybe actually needs hand painting in it, not another screen print layer. So going in with like a brush instead of a screen. Hmm. Um, so kind of the, the end result are these really soft and painterly prints um, of roughly the same kind of landscape, but um, all slightly different trying to find that memory <laughs> yeah. i guess so working on that that's like the heavy capital a art <laughs> and then um made a winter coat that was a really fun project i call it my cat coat because i have this really fun cat lining on the inside um i made sure that that coat has eight pockets so i can carry everything i need in it I put pockets in everything. Now. That's a good idea. Yeah, I think most um, most girls I know complain about the the lack of either a pockets or b functional pockets. So a coat with eight pockets sounds awesome. Is there any reason you set you settled on eight, or was it just a function thing? Uh, well, I wanted uh, outside and inside pockets, so four on the inside and four on the outside. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. It was made basically. Uh. I wanted a pocket for a wallet, a phone, and I have two sets of keys I carry, and so I wanted the options for all of that. Mm-hmm. Go either inside my coat or outside my coat. Oh, well, look and, at that. Uh, yeah. So I made that, and uh, this past weekend I was trying to figure out overalls. I made a, three pairs of overalls over the weekend, and then that led to uh, a week of me making overall puns in the classroom, which you know the students love. Oh, yeah. They yeah. love when their teacher wears overalls all week and just makes overall puns whenever she can. <laughs> yes. That's definitely what my students are looking for. Yeah. Um, um, now, when, when you're making stuff, uh, I assume some of it's coming from, from fresh material, but uh, how do you kind of view recycling? Because I know that at least... A lot of the work that I do, it's very hard to recycle some of that that material, or you end up spending, you know, ten times as long to use a recycled piece of material as opposed to just using a new piece of material. Uh, where does your practice fall on, you know, new material versus you going and buying stuff or you finding stuff and recycling it in? Oh my gosh, there's a lot of guilt there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of guilt there, um, as just a maker of things and objects in a world that doesn't need more things and objects there's built there <laughs> yeah i think to begin with but um like i said the fashion industry is very very um steeped in in a lot of environmental issues and i do feel a lot of guilt about how i use material and so I actually, a lot of the fabric stores that I go to are stores that and sell um, 
remnants or end of vault materials, mm-hmm. things that might not normally get sold. Um, I save almost all of my um, old fashioned pieces. I think this goes back to that idea of organized hoarding and um, pretty much after, after a fashion show or after a fashion piece is made, um, after I exhibit it, I usually put it in a nice like Tupperware box and it goes into my garage or a closet and um, it might live there for a year or up to three years and then it maybe gets recycled or turned into something else. So I kind of have this cycle of work that gets reused. Um, and then there's kind of like a point after maybe you know, five years if something hasn't been touched in that long where I'm like finally willing to like get rid of it and try and find a way to recycle it. But <laughs> I really try to reuse old projects. Mm-hmm. I try to be really careful about where I'm buying materials, especially when I have to buy materials in bulk. Um, yeah. I'm really, I try to be really aware of like what the materials are made out of too um, and where they're coming from. And whenever possible, um, I think because I live in such a small community, too, whenever possible, I try to find it locally. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a complex question that <laughs> brings up a lot of feelings for me. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of those uh, double-edged sword kind of things where... There's the kind of person you want to be and then the kind of person you're going to be because you want to get work done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, uh, um, on... Oh, sorry, go. No, uh, I, I agree. I think I think that's, um, that's important. And, and for me, like, you know, it's me asking those questions to myself, kind of, students see that sometimes that can cause a ripple effect for them. And... Um, that's meaningful as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, on your work and the the idea of performance, I think a lot of people get hung up with performance art being either absurd stuff they don't want to have anything to do with, or stuff like um, I'm probably going to mispronounce her name, like Marina Abramovic. But your um, your performance work feels much more like theater or fashion or or that those sort of more traditional performances than what most of us think of when we're taught about performance art mm-hmm. um why did you land on that is that more comfortable for you is that a better spot for you do you have more control what is it about that sort of performance that that you've kind of landed on and said i like this one yeah um well i mean when i was younger i was also trained as a dancer and dance had a really big influence on me. Um, and I think a lot of that informs my work. Um, I've also been at Interlock, and this is, goodness, this is the start of year seven here. Uh-huh. And this school has um, a lot, a lot of performing arts to offer. And so I think recently being influenced by my colleagues and what's happening here also helps um but you know i didn't my family they're not artists with capital a's my mom is a teacher and my dad is a roofer and um 
you know, it's really important for me that my artwork can be entered into by anybody. And I think sometimes when when art gets too minimal, uh, it can be hard for, for people to enter into, especially if you don't have like a background knowledge of what, what that is. And so for me, um, that's where kind of, you said absurdity, but when I think of absurdity, I try to kind of couple it with humor. Um, mm-hmm. I find humor and absurdity and being able to kind of laugh, laugh at yourself um, mm-hmm. to be a, a really good way of uh, helping your viewers enter into the work yeah humor is something that's easy for people to to lock on to and kind of use that to walk them through the rest of it yeah um so i think that's kind of how how i ended up there um now on the topic of um the easy to get into um that's something that i think a lot of artists struggle uh, struggle with is that they feel like you can make work that has public appeal or you can make work that um, has the higher level critical appeal. And it's very difficult to to get in between those. Have you found any, any strategies for bridging that or do you kind of make one thing for one group and one thing for another group? I think that's, that's a hard question to answer. Yes. And um, for me, uh, never you can try and bring those two groups together, the better. Um, for fashion, it's, it's, it's very different because um, I, especially when I'm making something for a fashion show, I have a captive audience kind of for uh-huh. a set amount of time. Uh, whereas some of my other work, you don't necessarily have that. And um, at other work, I want to kind of have the effect of pulling people in, but also keeping them there for a little bit. And I think for me, I try to use materials in a way that do that. Um, Materials that try and maybe tug a bit more at some of those like sensory memories you have. Um, I think that's, that's part of why I'm so interested in working in like culture and fashion and things that have like very different um kind of tactile memory associated with them Uh Um, now that's interesting like i guess generally when i think of making a a piece of art that's going to go on the wall i kind of want to grab somebody and then convince them to hang around and look at it for a little while um but with the fashion thing you do have that captive audience they're literally stuck in their seats they have to look at your stuff um but it's for such a brief amount of time how about how long is that i'm trying to think of how long like a runway walk out and back is um but that can't be a very long amount of time to communicate a complicated message no it's it's not i mean it can be anywhere from like i don't know like i say usually it's about a minute yeah. could be even in quicker um usually for my fashion shows each piece has about a minute on the runway and then there's usually kind of a final walkthrough where uh-huh. things come out briefly again at the end uh-huh. um but i also like i think like all artists like my work also lives in documentation so i also make a point to have those pieces documented um so they can be up on my website, but it's 
not quite the same because you can't really see the movement of the pieces. Yeah, and there's um, got to be something special about it being part of a, a show like that as well. There's sort of energy yeah. that doesn't exist on a, in an image. Exactly, yeah. It's definitely like an energy thing. It's a very like kind of fleeting type feeling. Um, but it's very, very exciting, you know. Now, how do you... So I know that a lot of your stuff kind of has a, a an overarching concept and then you, you're building that out through these pieces. Um have you found that it just limits the con the amount of content you can put in? How do, how do you handle that one minute, right? Like, we all know that billboards on the side of the road, you get about five seconds of reading. So you just put up three big words and you're good to go. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you handle that in the, in the sense of the work that you're doing? Have you limited the number of symbols you use? Have you limited how have you done something I haven't even thought of? Yeah, um... Well, when I'm making, like, a a runway show, I try not to think of it as, like, separate pieces, but pieces that make up a whole story together. Um, And And you mean multiple pieces out, multiple people's outfits as the different pieces, correct? Yeah. Okay, okay. Multiple multiple looks or multiple outfits on different people. Um, Almost like multiple characters, in a way, that come together to tell a full story. Um. But I've kind of learned through experience that um, it's important to have cues that can connect those things. And for me, it's often material, types of fabric, color is a big way to do it as well. Mm -hmm. So um, while each piece might have its own identity, um, there will be kind of over overarching fabrics or colors that try to kind of be woven amongst all the pieces to show kind of how they're they're interconnected to one another mm-hmm. well, that's really yeah that, that just strikes me as just doubling the problems of putting on an art show at least <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it kind of it's it's limiting but um sometimes you need that rule-based art oh, yeah. to uh move forward and if i had too many options for that story, I think I would probably get paralyzed <laughs> and have trouble moving forward. Mm-hmm. And with, when we're talking about your art shows, I think that's probably, or I'm sorry, your fashion show stuff, I think that's a really good place to get into this. I have in my notes, um, we talked a little bit about humor and absurdity kind of as a joint pair, but there's also um, surreal and the strangeness of, of certain arts. Um, how do you find that that fits into your work? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I'm kind of a strange person. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I think a bit of it is uh, reflective, self-reflective. Um, I've had uh, one of my good friends who's who's a very, uh, in my opinion, a very, very successful artist. She's told me that I'm one of the weirdest artist she knows and for me that's like a huge compliment i think <laughs> weird is good strange is good um because you remember it but um you know i think a lot of it is self-reflective and um yeah my my brain is strange and the, the lens through which i see the world is kind of strange and um 
not really sure what else to say to that. Um, I think the something that I would like you to define is you said that somebody that, that another artist said you you your work was weird or you were a weird artist. Um, mm-hmm. Now, to most people, that just means out of the ordinary. Right. But I I feel like the way that it's being used in this context and kind of the way that the arts uses strangeness is not just out of the ordinary. There's some other flavor to it almost. Um, mm-hmm. What do you, How do you define that when you're writing or when you're thinking about this? Yeah. Um, I think there's something about like the word like weird or strangeness that makes it hard to define, which is maybe why we like kind of want to use it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it covers all manner of sins. It does, and it's it's a bit ambiguous, um, but I don't know. Does that answer your question? I guess. Yeah. No, that's just a really hard question. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let, let's throw get me a, some, throw me some softballs. Okay. Well, while we're talking about strange things, let's talk about teaching yeah. high school students. Um, oh, so much strangeness. Yeah. So. I teach college, and I have I've I've taught a few I think middle school like uh, one day things, and really beyond that I don't deal much with anybody younger than maybe eighteen, nineteen. Um, what are the pros and cons of teaching high school kids? It has to be both just absolutely fascinating and horrifying at the same time. Uh yes, yes. Um... It is. I um, well, I, I did you know briefly teach teach college for a little while, and I've also taught two year olds and infants uh, before that, and uh, I found that they're very similar. Two year olds, college students, high schoolers, like yep. we're all humans, and um, I found that like. Nine out of ten times when there's a problem, it's probably got nothing to do with me or what's happening in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Like nine out of ten times, it's maybe food-related, sleep-related, stress-related, social-related. And, um, you know, I've found that, like, when they're in crisis, if there's a way to, like, kind of get through that, um, then it's a bit then it's a bit easier. Um, But yeah, high schoolers are strange. Um, They don't (laughs) remember things at all. Like they just don't remember things. It like flies off them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And they're also like fearless. That's what I love about them. They're fearless. Like they will try to start doing something before you're even done handing them the equipment. Um, which half the time blows up in your face, but half the time is this beautiful discovery. Um, so it, it varies. And then um, sometimes they say like some of the most like on point intuitive things, and then they turn around and punch their best friend in the back of the head, you know? <laughs> so, um, oh, man. It's never really dull. It's never a dull moment. Um, but I think, like, it's just a lot of managing human needs first, teaching second, 
mm-hmm. probably even more so now in pandemic times. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that. Um, do you feel that, that that students are a little bit more aware of where their own emotions are coming from, or is it just so overwhel- so overwhelming that you're still in about the same spot? Um, I'm actually really, really astonished by their resilience right now. I think um, either they're doing better than a lot of adults or they're better at hiding some of these feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, They, you know, I try to remind myself that when we went home and everybody was virtually learning this spring, that 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 was a long time for them. Like their lives haven't been that long. And so that was a really big fraction of their lifespan. And so for them getting back to school in person was like a really, really serious motivator for them. And so I've seen, at least from my students, like kind of this renewed um, level of vigor that has come from this year. That's fantastic. Um, it's it's really amazing, but at the same time, um, it's coupled with the fact that we've had to restructure our semester, and they won't be seeing their families until mid December. Mm-hmm. And you know, they are dealing with homesickness. They are in masks all day. They are teenagers that we're expecting to keep six feet apart at all times. <laughs> we're asking a, we're asking an awful lot of them, but I think uh, from what I've seen, I see more grace from them than a lot of the adults in my life. Um, yeah, which is hopeful. Yeah, that's always it's always good to see. Now let's hope they don't age out of that of those qualities. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think you're in a really particular position compared to a lot of high school teachers, especially a lot of high school art art teachers. Um, but from your perspective, how do you prepare your kids for college? And a little bit including COVID, but but not even if you don't include that. Like, what does that even mean anymore? College is very much going through a transition phase or maybe the last little bit of stability before a transition phase. Um, How do you get them ready for that? Yeah, that's hard. Um, Well, to back up, you said I work for a very particular institution. I think privilege is a better word. Um, I work at a very privileged institution that has a lot of resources to allocate towards the arts and getting these students into art programs that Mm -hmm. really are going to meet their needs. And so um, I do, I feel very, very grateful for the fact that I work for a school like I do right now Mm -hmm. um, that is taking um, our health and the health of our students so seriously. And um, if I were a public school teacher, I don't think I would be a public school teacher this year. I think I would have been uh, looking for a new job. That's um, kind of how strongly I feel about what's happening in a lot of our schools right now. But um, so I just want to say that, um, yeah, I think that this is like a very, very like privileged opportunity that I get to work with these students at this school at this time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I would agree with that, but that doesn't, 
One, I should say, yes, you're right. Two, I don't think that invalidates your opinion on the way that um, colleges are moving. And I've seen some of those students work and they deserve every bit of resources that get thrown, thrown into making them better artists. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're incredible. Oh, yeah. Um, they're, they're incredible students. And so <laughs> yes. I think, um, yeah, college. So let's get back to the topic of college. Um, oh, yes. Sorry. I got off track. <laughs> Um, and how do I prepare them for college and things like that? Well, um, it's very, it's different this year. It's, it's very different. Um, in the past, it's been really about getting them at the right institution with the right program for what mm -hmm. the student wants. Um, there's often uh, maybe a financial or scholarship element that's mm -hmm. also in there. Like, can we get more money from this school versus that school? Mm -hmm. But this year, it's changed a lot. And while um, actually not too long ago, we had our virtual parents weekend. And so I spent a lot of time talking to, to parents about school. And the conversations really went from, you know, check out the programs, look at this, to um, really the first thing I tell them is look at their um, COVID plan. How did they approach classes when the pandemic happened? Mm -hmm. How are they approaching it now? What are the contingency plans? Um, you have to read about that, but you have to go deeper than that. You have to also look at what is the work that's coming out of the programs right now? And is that matching what was happening before this? Um, yeah. And is that what you want? So I have been really urging a lot of students to, to get on websites and really try and get into student work and see what students are making right now. Follow the schools on Instagram, follow, you know, students on Instagram and see what they're making and see if that matches where you want to go. Does that look like it's going to be challenging enough for you? Um, uh -huh. And then another thing, which sometimes students and parents forget about is I tell them to look at how are they treating their faculty right now during times of COVID and pandemic? Mm -hmm. um, did they lay off all of the part-time faculty? Does that mean that all their full-time faculty have a lot more classes and are stretched thinner? Because if that's the case, that's going to directly correlate to the student experience, right? Mm -hmm. Or are they reaching out to other institutions that do have pre-existing online and virtual programs and trying to make it more robust? Um, so, like, this is, like, kind of advice that, you know, yes, look at student work, but, um, you know, very much, especially because we don't really know when this is going to end, you really need to know what what's in store for both in-person, hybrid, or um, worst case scenario, all virtual learning if you do want to go to a higher education institution. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, before we move on, I was going to ask you about that because uh, you, you, you're teaching a few students at least completely vir virtually and this is my first semester doing any teaching vir like virtually entirely. Um, of course, there's those few times you miss a class and email your students their homework, but uh, overall, this is the first time for a lot of teachers. Um, how do you feel about teaching 
something that is so hands-on as the visual arts it, it virtually like you and I I think are both very materials people um, mm-hmm. from your description of, of the first thing you do is touch a piece of clothing to see if that's okay um, mm-hmm. and not being able to contact work is really problematic for at least for me um, how, how are you feeling about that with with teaching at um, with teaching with students that are probably a little bit better at, at uh, being able to photograph their work and things like that and send you visual virtual representations of their work but it is just such an odd thing do you think it's it's can it stand or yeah um it's tricky you have to like treat i think each situation pretty individually um you know i think earlier when everybody was virtual it was um a little bit easier because i could at least uh, make kind of instructional videos that would show the hands-on stuff mm-hmm. um, now that I um, it's the majority of my class is in person and then I just have a handful of virtual students um, I have to kind of tailor it a bit more to them and what I found is especially um, I think a majority of my virtual students are in China um, they don't necessarily have the access to all the materials that they would obviously in an art building mm-hmm. and you have to kind of change your expectations. So the conversation is so much more about kind of the idea of driving the work. And uh, there's a lot more, I would say drawing and digital art that's being made right now. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, in a lot of ways, it, it's helped to kind of elevate a lot of like digital art, digital drawing for some of those students because you know, now it's just as valid. So I think a lot of it's been changing my expectations, um, both of my students and of myself and knowing that um, sometimes the knowledge I have to share with them isn't necessarily how to make something, but sometimes it's just me sitting there trying to talk through their ideas with them being a sounding board and uh yeah that's a bit how i think virtual teaching has changed for me yeah i think that the the point about um digital art kind of being boosted by this it's almost just leveled the playing field like if everything can only be experienced through photographs or videos then it doesn't really matter whether it was a you know a physical object in the first place or not and i think that that's kind of something that's been happening slowly over time, but it just, you know, went off a cliff all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. All right. Well, off of the terrible subject of, you know, how poor, how poorly a lot of institutions are dealing with this. Um, so a lot of your work, and let's get a little bit back to your work. Um, a lot of your work does have this concept of, you know, place, space, traveling, ecology, I would hesitate to say environmentalism, but probably a little bit of environmentalism as well. Um, what are you looking to do in the future? Like, what it what what, what can we expect out of you? Yeah, great <laughs> question. Um, well, I hope that one day <laughs> I am able to do some runway fashion stuff again. Um, 
so part of me has started kind of sketches for for that one day and what that would be um i've recently started making um these wall hanging sculptures that are kind of based off of like planets or moons and they also um kind of reference places i travel they're like resin and plaster casted um kind of half spheres that have lights embedded in them and so plan to make um kind of an installation space of that and uh thinking a lot about um the idea of orbit and those we surround ourselves with and how they they impact who we are and and this idea of kind of orbit as a metaphor for a lot of things that are happening Mm -hmm. so making those uh making some fashion um obviously sketchbooking uh i'm trying not to get too inundated with politics it's so crazy right now but i do have we're all looking to avoid that as much as possible yeah i do have a print that i have been avoiding (laughs) about that so we'll see if that actually comes to fruition but right now, I think the thing I'm most excited about is this planet and moon series that I'm making and the um, the dirt cast that I was telling you about. So I, I made one, but um, that project is definitely not done. That's definitely just starting. So excited to make more of those um, type sculptures. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I think it was a good chat uh is there anything else you want to tell you know early college students um other than just do good work (laughs) i mean yeah like you know like always always be working always be making ask the question you know like it's it's on you man that's that's all i have to say it's on you you have to do it not going to get handed to you. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Have a lovely day. Thank you, Wyndham, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. It was so nice talking to you.